When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson here with the Project Upland podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us for another episode, episode number five. The Project Upland podcast has been a lot of fun so far. I've had some great conversations with some great guests, and I hope all of you, the listener, are enjoying it. We have received some feedback about all things guest-related, sound-related, suggestions, comments, concerns, all of that good stuff, and I sincerely appreciate it. I appreciate all of our listeners, but especially those that take the time out of their day to let us know what they think of the show and what we can do to improve it. So please do not hesitate to come forward with ideas that you might have or suggestions that you have for us. If you would like to get a hold of me or anybody at Project Upland, you can always do so uh, via the contact form at projectupland.com. Those won't come directly to me. Uh, So if you're trying to get a hold of me, probably the best way to do it is you can comment on the podcast post on the website. When When I post those, I can see and reply to comments there. You can also look me up on Facebook. I don't think I'm too hard to find. Just look for a Nick Larson that has nothing but blaze orange dogs, birds, and guns. 
for the pictures that I post. I think I'm pretty easy to find there. Uh, Instagram at ni larson. That's n i l a r s o n. Another easy way to find me. And then you can always email me uh, if that's your preferred method. Nick Larson at NorthwoodsCollective.com. With that said, uh, it is Wednesday today. Oh, before I do that, I need to do uh, something that I kind of been forgetting to do for the last few episodes, but uh, sort of a tribute, if you will, uh, to one of my inspirations when I was uh, thinking about doing a podcast. I would often listen to this person's podcast, and I even recall a specific episode when he was talking about other people potentially doing podcasts, and he encouraged it because he enjoyed doing it so much, and he enjoys upland hunting and bird dogs so much that he just wanted there to be more of it out there, which there really isn't. So I appreciate that. I have always appreciated that, and I always enjoy his podcast, and I think you should check it out. And that would be Ron Bain of the Hunting Dog Podcast. He has, gosh, he's been at it for, he could probably tell me, probably three, maybe four years or something. He's been he's been doing the Hunting Dog Podcast, and he's done a phenomenal job with it. I Like I said, I enjoy it to this day. I'm always excited when I see another episode come out. And he uh, he does an excellent job. So, Ron, you probably don't listen to the Project Duffin podcast. But if you do, I appreciate you, buddy. And this is for you. Thanks, Ron. I needed a beer anyways. All right. So, it is Wednesday today. Monday, I got back from my uh, most recent weekend adventure this weekend, I was at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You might know them from the intro to our show. They are the number one supporter of the Project Upland podcast. I consider the owner of the camp and many of the people that frequent there a friend of mine, and they are certainly now a friend of Project Upland. Uh, I was out there with AJ DeRosa and Kyle Potton of Project Upland, we were doing all kinds of stuff, filming, photography, interviews, all sorts of stuff for both Pine Ridge Grouse Camp and Project Duplin. We had an excellent time out there. Pine Ridge Grouse Camp is first class. Jerry treated us like we were paying customers out there, and we certainly appreciate that. Uh, it was so much fun, and... I think you will enjoy the content that is eventually produced from our trip there. You'll see it in a few different avenues. You'll see some of it come from Pine Ridge Gals Camp, likely, and you'll see some of it come from Project Duplin. So stay tuned for that. We had a great time out there and very much, uh, very much appreciate the hospitality and uh, the folks that we got to spend time with at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Uh, we have... Uh, Oh yeah, I got to do my hunting report. Hunting report, I'll keep this short because there's really not a lot to share. As I said, I was at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. That is essentially north-central Minnesota. For me, that would be the fourth-slash-fifth different region of the Minnesota-slash-Wisconsin rough grouse and woodcock range that I have hunted this year. Five different 
I would say significantly different regions and I found more of the same. We moved some birds, we flushed some birds, we shot some birds. We didn't flush or shoot a lot of birds. Uh, that's sort of been the story for me. Um, grouse are just hard to come by this year in a lot of areas. Um, common theme, anecdotally, haven't talked about this a lot, but I was fortunate enough to shoot three grouse last weekend. All of them were males, two of them big, beautiful adult male birds. And I don't know why, but it just left me feeling, I don't know, kind of sad. I guess I don't know if I've ever paid as much attention to the birds that I'm, that I'm harvesting, but the young juvenile birds just did not do that well this year. Um, as far as my experience goes and some anecdotal experience and comments that I see on Facebook and that sort of thing. So everybody has their own experience and I don't mean this to be a blanket statement and, or, or, or to come off sounding a biologist here or scientific, but my experience, I've shot a lot of adult birds this year, not so many juveniles and just the sheer numbers. I, I keep track of my flush counts and my hours hunted and my miles walked. And I think at the end of the season, I haven't bothered to tally them up yet, but I'm pretty sure that at the end of the season, unless something drastically changes over the next couple weeks, that my numbers will indicate the experience that I feel I've had in the woods this year. And that is that grouse numbers are down and probably even woodcock numbers too, um, which, and I have an interesting variable at play too in that I've got a three-year-old English setter and... For me, the last, this is our fourth season in the woods together. And of course, I don't go through the entire season hunting only my dog and always my dog. I hunt with other people and I hunt with other dogs. But the majority of the time I spend in the woods is hunting over my dog. As a young dog, the last four seasons, we have seen dramatic improvements, obviously in my dog's performance, but we've seen dramatic increases in the number of birds pointed slash flushed because my dog's skills are so greatly improving. And so this being the fourth season for my English setter, this is his best year yet, no doubt. He's still on the development curve and he is better this year than he's ever been. And so if we see, and I don't expect the numbers, they're not, my numbers are not going to go up every single year, but it's just to say that my dog is on that development curve. So we've seen some pretty good jumps in the activity and the birds that I personally flush and shoot at over my dog. So in a year like this, where I feel like he's made another improvement and if the numbers truly are down, I think it's going to speak to that a little bit, a little bit more, even for, from my perspective, uh, just that the numbers that I'm encountering are just, of course, not where I wish they would be, but they're, they're certainly not where um, the preseason expectation I had. And uh, I guess that's enough said on that, that subject. And I will sort of recap it all in saying that grouse hunting, woodcock hunting, upland bird hunting, it always is what it is. We can't set false expectations. And buying a hunting license does not guarantee success. That's why it's called 
upland bird hunting, and that is why, personally, I do it. So, I have enjoyed my season no less as a result of any of the bird contacts or relative success that I have had or not had and reported here on this podcast. I have enjoyed my season to the fullest, and I will continue to do so as it is just past the halfway point in October, and we still have plenty of phenomenal hunting left. So I hope you are all out there doing the same, and let us know how your seasons are going because we love to hear about it. In fact, I've been talking to a guy that uh, I've never met him, but uh, we chat a little bit on Facebook, and he recently, I believe he's from California, and I could be wrong. You can correct me, Rob, if I am, but uh, I believe he's from California, and he just traveled all the way to Minnesota just to go grouse hunting because he knows he knows the resource that we have here, and uh, he's been messaging me a little bit, kind of telling me how he's how he's been doing, and he has been out the last couple of days, and is kind of finding some of that uh, limited success that I just got done going on and on about. Um, and I, so I kind of told him, you know, whatever you ultimately find this year, take it with a grain of salt. It's not a typical year. There's obviously some things at play that are influencing uh, what's happening out in the woods. And uh, regardless, he's, uh, he's having a hell of a time in Minnesota. He's enjoying the scenery and he's enjoying the work of his dogs, and he found some success today. So congrats to, to you, Rob, and uh, I hope you uh, you have a hell of a time in Minnesota because that's what this time of year is all about. So that's just one story from uh, from somebody that I, I know from following on Facebook, and there's a million of those, and uh, everybody's out there doing it this time of year. So go get it. Get after it. All right. This week's episode, oh, I got I to gotta add one more little uh, sort of a plug since we're kind of talking about Facebook. This time of year, I, I know everybody has probably their own opinion of Facebook. This time of year, as long as I can sort of control my intake of it, I love Facebook because it's, my feed is nothing but hunting, bird dogs, guns, birds, and people having a good time in the woods. And... It's just nonstop, and it's really cool to uh, to share and connect. And I'm there's a lot of really cool uh, Facebook groups out there. Mainly the grouse ones are the ones that I'm into right now, just because that's sort of my game and that's what I'm doing. But there's a ton of good groups out there. Gunning for grouse is a fantastic one. Uh, but this I won't go on too long about this. This is really just a shout out for the Michigan Grouse Hunters Group, uh, which. I, I hunted Michigan the last two years, so I guess I could call myself a Michigan grouse hunter, but I sort of watch from afar as a Minnesota guy. But that group is phenomenal. They have a super good mix of informative posts. Um, they got a moderator on there. I'm going to be totally wrong on this, but I think it's Adam Wilson, but I'm not sure. Whatever whatever they're doing, they're doing it right because they have they – have a really good mix of informative posts, great commentary. People are always on there asking for advice. And I feel like the advice that they get is sort of sincere and well-intentioned and I enjoy following along, but they're also, they're super funny. There's some really, really funny posts. Uh, if you're a grouse hunter and you have sort of a quirky sense of humor, that group has it dialed in right now. So, uh, 
everybody that's a part of the uh, Michigan Grouse Hunting Group on Facebook and uh, c- contributing to the uh, comic relief aspect of the season, keep it up because I personally enjoy it and I know that a bunch of other people do. So way to go, uh, Michigan Grouse Hunters Group. You guys are awesome. Um, all right, I'm going on here. This is uh, I'm going to cut this intro down because, well, I have to cut it off because I haven't done the interview for tonight yet. And I'm going to do it in like two minutes when my buddy calls me. So that's it. Our guest today is a really good friend of mine. I met him in college and we did not know each other. Our love of grouse hunting brought us together. And over the years since we have graduated and left college, we have become pretty good pals, I would say. I've learned a lot from him. He got into bird dogs before I did and and uh, side-by-side shotguns, fox shotguns. Uh, I've, like I said, I picked up a ton along the way from him and uh, he's a he's what I would call he's a DIY upland hunter. He's not a self-proclaimed expert or anything like that, but he has a passion for it uh, that burns about as bright as anybody I know. Uh, including myself, and uh, he does things the right way, and he does things uh, with good intentions, and uh, he respects the game, respects the pursuit of upland hunting, and I think that's pretty clear um, for anybody that's spent any amount of time around him. Uh, so we're going to talk tonight probably about all kinds of stuff. Uh, he runs short hairs, and like I said, he shoots a fox shotgun. And, but we're going to talk a little bit about a uh, trip to Montana he just had because I know this podcast can get a little uh, grouse and woodcock centric just because that's the time of year and that's that's what I know and love. But we're going to talk about Montana because Garrett just took a trip out there and uh, I want to learn more about it and I'm sure that you guys do too. So my guest tonight uh, is Garrett Mikeroot. He is uh, He's an upland hunter. He's part of... Uh, the Northwoods are blog that he and I started a few years ago. Uh, if anybody's a follower there, it was both he and I started that and we still basically all we do right now is maintain an Instagram account. But, uh, if you followed us there, you'll be familiar with Garrett and, uh, yeah, we're going to have a good conversation. So at this time, I'd like to welcome my good friend, honey partner to the show, Garrett Mikeroot. All right, Garrett Mikeroot, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Yep. It's uh, my pleasure. Appreciate you joining the Project Upland podcast. And uh, as I informed the listeners in the intro to the show, you and I know each other pretty well. So this is going to be a casual conversation. And uh, it's it's both of our favorite month of the year, so I imagine we'll have plenty to talk about. You bet. It doesn't Uh, get any better than, doesn't get, get any better than October. Yeah, I guess with that said, what uh, what's your favorite thing about October? Uh, it's hard hard to narrow it down to just one favorite. Um, I mean, the, the cooler temps, the the changing colors, uh, just getting out in the woods, um, getting the dogs out, getting getting some miles on the on the boots, and uh, just enjoying what we all love to do. Yep, you got it right there with you, buddy. Um, all right, I want to ask you, I know a lot of this, but not everybody else does. Talk about your 
introduction to the sport of upland hunting and uh, what sort of fueled you to become the crazed upland addict that you are today, like myself? Um, man, it goes way back, I guess. I grew up, um, when I was born, we had German shorthair pointers in the house. Um, and I, I guess that's basically my first introduction to it, is just having the dogs around. Um, I played hockey growing up and was pretty busy. We didn't get out hunting a whole lot, uh, but we would we would get up to uh, the deer shack north of Duluth and um, check deer stands and, and grouse hunt for a couple days um, every year, and then typically would try to get out and go pheasant hunting over Thanksgiving weekend. Other than that, it was pretty much just playing hockey, so um, didn't really get into bird hunting big until um, kind of my college years. Um, just when I was, uh, living up in Duluth and, um, had some more access to it. Um, and then I guess from there, um, I met my wife, um, my now wife at college and we were dating and got an invite to go out to North Dakota. Um, and her dad, um, had a lab and we would go out there pheasant hunting, um, over Thanksgiving. And, uh, basically at that point I was like, I need to get myself a bird dog, and I always knew I'd want a short hair, so um, did some research and ended up with a short hair, and I, I really started um, kind of my upland passion out in the Dakotas, out in North Dakota pheasant hunting, um, and then it just kind of transitioned, um, and the, I guess the accessibility to grouse hunting in Minnesota, you know, lends itself to a lot of opportunities locally without having to travel so far. Um so really kind of started dialing in on grouse and woodcock hunting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I guess I, I, you know, I I remembered that you uh, grew up with short hairs and that you would likely wind up with one. And I remember when you got your first dog, Stella, uh, who yeah. is, how, how old is she today, seven? Yeah, she's seven. Yeah, yeah she's seven. I remember, seven. When, I remember when she was just a pup and... That was before I had got into bird dogs. Um, I kind of like you. I had some vague idea that I would get a bird dog at some point, but I didn't have like a specific time or place or date labeled on it or anything. But I remember when you got your dog, and uh, we met up in in uh, some of the some of the grouse cover grouse territory that we both had frequented on not knowing that uh i didn't know you were hunting there and you didn't know i was hunting there but our territories kind of overlapped i guess if you will and uh i hunting over stella was some of my really my first experiences hunting with a bird dog uh but i guess what i where i was going with that is is like i didn't when you when you decided to get that dog, it was it was your experiences out in North Dakota and like you just knew the time was right and you were just like I got to get a dog. Yeah, I mean, I, we, I was in the right position. I mean, we were married, we had a house, we had a uh, you know the space and room for it, and we were just I guess kind of ready to to um, take that plunge. So um, yeah, I mean, and and I th- I always think it's kind of funny because you obviously grew up you know, in Duluth and hunting probably like a lot much, I guess upland hunting much more, more so as a kid than I did. Um, 
and I, I feel like in some way we kind of introduce each other to what, what we now know is, you know, our true passion of grouse hunting. Like I, I always felt like you were an influence on me, um, becoming more into the grouse hunting and, um, I guess myself and Stella kind of was an influence on you and in, in winding up with the bird dog yourself. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I think that's, that's like very likely what, what drew us together. I mean, obviously we had a common passion for hunting, but I sort of had my experience and perspective. You had yours, you know, you, you hunted with dogs growing up. I, I did like once or twice, but not much. And so it was like, yeah, I, I, I remember kind of early on, I would share a lot about what I knew about grouse and woodcock hunting and, and well, not, not so much woodcock hunting, actually, the dogs taught us about woodcock hunting. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah. But, but you getting the, getting the dog and, you know, me paying very close attention to, you know, how you were, how you were, how Stella was doing and, and the kinds of things that you would do with the bird dog that I just had no clue with. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it was, it was kind of, kind of neat how that worked out and, uh, you know, yeah, here we are today, and I feel like I've I've certainly followed in your footsteps with certain things, you know, especially the bird dog, and now I've got this uh, affliction for fox shotguns, which I didn't know I was going to have, but uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so, yeah, so, so you know, we both grew up in Minnesota. Um, naturally, grouse and woodcock hunting is is available to us you have had more experiences um with things other than grouse and woodcock hunting be it pheasant hunting or or now sharp tail hunting and, and hunting out west which is what we're going to get into next but uh talk about how because i know you enjoy it talk about how the different seasons and species and pursuits of upland hunting sort of take shape in the fall and sort of what you enjoy about, you know, how the season progresses and the different birds that you're pursuing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess at this point I, I would say I'm more of an opportunistic, um, traveling wing shooter. Um, you know, if I get an invite or something comes up or, you know, get a, get a wild hair idea to, um, plan a trip like, like the Montana trip, uh, we just went on, you know, I, I'd likely just stay in Minnesota for most of the season. I mean, I've got some, uh, some good opportunities to hunt some private land out in North Dakota. So I, I, I kind of touched on that earlier with my, um, the contacts that my wife has. So, you know, generally I, I go out to North Dakota every, um, Thanksgiving, but I guess my, my main season starts off just with the rough grouse opener here in Minnesota. Um, I have taken trips out to North Dakota sharp tail grouse hunting early season, like early September before, and that comes with its challenges. Like the last trip um, I went on, it was a number of years ago, um, out to North Dakota early season, but we had like temps, temperatures in the, in the 90s, and we literally hunted like a, an hour and a half in the morning and then an hour and a half at night. And back at that time, it's like gas was super expensive and it was hard to justify making a trip out there and spending all the time and using up part of your license, um, to, to really just sit in camp. Um, mm -hmm. and so that, that kind of re-diverted me back to the grouse woods. Um, and then the, the, uh, Montana trip, I think that we're, that we're going to be talking about is, 
um, you know, we, we go in October, like early October, we generally tar- try to target um, before the pheasant se- season opens just to avoid a little bit additional traffic. I think pheasants gener- pheasant hunters generally um, are a little bit more active, and there's there's more of them out there, so you're going to compete a little bit more for property to hunt on. Um, so that's kind of how the we've we've done the Montana trip. It's it's uh, it's always bittersweet. Um, in in the guys that go on the trip with, we always have this conversation of leaving Minnesota grouse woods in October to go hunt uh, sharpies in Montana. Uh, it's it's a hard proposition, but really when you get out there and you see the scenery and you see how wide open it is and, um, you know, just the experience of hunting a different bird and kind of getting a little different taste of what you're used to or that your, that your, you know, your home covers present, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to beat. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So yeah, we keep, we keep alluding to it. Let's just start talking about it. Cause I know yeah. I mean, you and I, you and I chatted a little bit earlier this week and I got kind of the, uh, kind of the recap, but this show through the first five episodes, as, as I mentioned in the intro has been fairly grouse and woodcock centric just because that's what's going on and that's what I'm doing. But I was excited to have you on this week to, to talk about, um, this Montana trip because it's, it's, you know, that's why I think a lot of people love upland hunting is because of the different flavors and variety. So just give us, I'll ask you some questions about it, but give us sort of the, the, uh, the recap, you know, uh, where you went generally and, uh, how long you were there and what you found while you were there and, you know, what kind of stuff went on over the, the last week or so when you were out, out West. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, I've got a group of guys that I've met um, through a 16-gauge shoot here in the Twin Cities. Um, I met two of the guys, Phil and Tom, there. Uh, man, it had to be like three years ago. And um, they both shot fox shotguns. Phil, Phil had a whole slew of them, graded guns. Um, and so I kept in touch with him um, on and off. And he, he kept alluding to this Montana trip that they take and, um, you know, kept mentioning that he thinks that I'd love it out there and have fun. I'm like, for sure, I'd love it out there and for <laughs> sure I'd have fun and just kind of waited around for an invite. And anyways, the, the invite eventually came and, and really at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's their trip. They've been going out there for a lot of years and I, yep. I'm very fortunate to, uh, um, have the invite and go along with them out there. Um, uh, so basically, I mean, we do it probably, I don't know, maybe different than a lot of people would do it, but we, um, we pack up camp. Um, uh, the group has a, a pop-up trailer camper that we tow out. Um, we had five, go- five guys go out in two different vehicles this year. We had uh, eight dogs. I, had, I brought three short hairs along, so it's uh, Stella and Surly are mine, plus, plus another one. And then... Um, the other guys have a mixture of uh, sprinters and cockers. So we had eight dogs total. And we basically just drive out. Um, three of us, well, you know, you, everybody's got tough, busy schedules. So three of us drove out Friday night through the night into Saturday morning um, and hunted most of the day Saturday and then set up camp. Um, then we hunted uh, Sunday and then Monday morning, the other two guys showed up. Uh, we, so we met up with them and 
and hunted um, kind of in the in a general like northeast Montana location um, for a few days, and then we were really struggling to to find birds and and we had some access to some private land so just doing research online and finding some land ownership maps um we've over the years kind of made some contacts out there and the the place that we camp was on private land and we had access to that land um two seasons ago when we were out there um so we so we set up there again and we shot like in two days we shot 30 sharpies and two different covers that were probably uh, maybe just under 10 miles apart. Um, so we, we had a pretty, pretty good couple days. Um, basically we had a, we had a three man limit and then we were two, two birds short of a five man limit. And, uh, there was plenty of birds up there, but we just kind of felt like we were seeing a lot less birds than we did in those same spots two years ago when we were out. So we actually, um, decided to pack up camp and, and change directions or change locations completely. So we we moved like uh, three and a half hours away and set up camp again and, and started um, to try and learn new covers and new areas to hunt. And I think the reason this year that we were having or not seeing quite the same bird numbers, um, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard heard um, information and news about this, but Montana and kind of western North Dakota were hit with a pretty hard um, drought this year, and um, they opened up they opened up the lands to cattle grazing, and and it was very apparent when you're out there that like you could just drive down a road and be looking for cover to hunt, and you would see public land, um, BLM, so that's that's federal land. BMA is um, is the uh, hunting land program that um, that you have access to private land um, through this BMA. It's kind of like the Minnesota CRP or plot, plots land in North Dakota. Yeah. Um, but you could literally just drive down the road, and it's like, man, this cover looks great, and then look on the other side of the road, and it looks like it was mowed with a lawnmower. And you're like, <laughs> and literally we're like driving down the road in the truck, and we pull up Onyx Maps, and the good cover is private land, and the mowed down cover which is not mowed it's it's been grazed down by cattle uh was all was all public stuff that was that was grazed um and so i mean it was it was harder finding cover to hunt um and so it's it's not to say that there weren't birds around it was just that um you know a lot of the stuff that was open to public land hunters was was grazed and likely not holding birds and and maybe they're even holding birds, but you're you're not going to be able to get on top of them in that short of cover. Um, so that's kind of the reason why we moved around and figured, you know, it's never bad to to have some new areas and learn areas and have something yeah. in the back pocket just to be able to move around a little bit. Yeah, cool. So, so yeah, so you kind of I was going to ask you because this is your second trip out there. Your first one being two years ago, 2015, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you kind of, you know, you kind of compared and contrasted a little bit um, the difference between those two seasons. In 2015, did you guys set up camp and just stay put the entire time? Yeah, we we set up camp and it's pretty cool. So I mean, we try to maximize maximize our time of field. So that's that's why we drove through the night. Um, and uh, I realize I didn't touch on this now, but we basically 
you know, get on the road as early as possible and then try to get back, you know, with leaving ourselves a day to uh, kind of unpack and unwind and regroup at home. Um, yeah. So we so we left Friday night, um, started hunting probably at like 8.30 or 9 Saturday morning, and then we hunted through Saturday about noontime and headed back to camp and packed up camp. And um, I think we probably hit the road, I don't know, it was around 2 o'clock, and then we got home. I think I hopped to bed at like 2.30 Sunday morning. Um, so it's fairly like aggressive. 12-hour 12, 12 drive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's. I mean, we moved around a little bit, so, yeah, we're, we're kind of looking at somewhere between 12 and 13 hours. Sure. So. Okay. Um, well, so so now you, you mentioned that, like, you got invited on this trip, obviously. What I want to know is... Did these, did the guys that you join up with, um, did they kind of DIY this thing themselves? Whenever it was when they started, when they started hunting out there, were they, uh, did they have contacts, connections out there, or did they sort of, like I said, DIY this trip and just sort of figure it out on their own? Yeah, they they completely, it's completely DIY. Um, so one of the guys, Tom, that I met at the 16-gauge shoot, he actually uh, moved out to Whitefish for a couple of years, so or like a oh, year okay. or something like that. So that's like way northwestern North Dakota. And then he had a group of buddies that was in Minnesota, and they were like, hey, we should hook up and meet. And so northeastern Montana was, or eastern Montana is kind of the, the middle point. So they each you know, drove halfway and met each other and then hunted, and that's kind of how it started. Um and like I said, I've been very fortunate just to be invited along because they've they've spent a ton of ton of time and effort kind of honing in the regions that they want to hunt, um, and and kind of getting the experience that they want. And um, you know, they've it's awesome to sit down and listen to them because like one year they had just torrential downpours and they were like they literally drove all the way across the state back west to get out of the rain and to hunt mountain grouse um and you know they they used to they uh they used to camp in tents um and just tent it and um one morning i think they woke up and there was like two feet of snow on the ground and the tent was collapsing <laughs> so after that they were like we got to get a camp first so it's evolved over time um and uh yeah it's 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 one of those things where you just I mean anytime you're le- learning new cover I mean you've talked about it on the podcast just finding um, finding finding grouse covers in Minnesota it's 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 no different than that you got to put in your time and effort um, make some landowner connections um, you know we we stopped in the fishing game uh, wildlife office out there and, and got some pointers and some access to uh, so, to some of the BMA lands and you know every state has their has their regulations that you need to learn and um, you know it's a, it's a pretty big undertaking but I think if you do it for a couple of years um, you can learn a lot and definitely have some success yeah yeah the point being that that you guys you know you, you're learning from people that have sort of paved the way but still it can be done you know you put in the time the effort the passion it can be done and I mean, you guys are having a hell of a time out there. You're shooting birds. I, 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 I see the pictures that you posted and that, that Phil posted on Upland Journal this week. I mean, just absolutely 
jaw-dropping, gorgeous scenery, nothing but blue sky and, and endless horizon. Talk about a little bit about how cool that is, you know, as somebody that kind of has his roots down here in, in Grouse and Woodcock territory. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I don't know, when I look at it and the experience I'm looking for um, personally, this this may not be for everybody, but I like the solitude. I like being out there and thinking I'm the only person in, I don't care whether it's Montana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, like you kind of want to have a cover to yourself and you're the only one in there hunting those birds. And, and I think as I'm evolving as a, as a, as an upland hunter, like I'm, I'm really starting to find a lot of enjoyment out of finding new covers and to not really know what to expect when you jump into somewhere new and what you're going to find and where the birds are going to be. Um, you know, I, th- I think if you hunt covers over and over, at least for me, the allure starts to wear off over time. And, uh, I, I think we, you know, we've talked about that this year, even just, just trying to find, find new covers. And I mean, you, you go out there and it's just, it's endless expansion. I mean, you can drive for miles and miles and miles and just scout cover and, and, you know, be looking with, I mean, Onyx Maps is price priceless. Um, cool. I guess it's it's. Yeah, <laughs> I know you guys had Onyx on on the podcast, and yep. I'm, I'm not endorsed by him at all. But uh, an Onyx Map subscription is worth its weight in gold when you're out there. Um, just to know, you know, who who owns the land, you can get a whole. You know, you can try to figure out who the landowners are. You can see what um, what land is private, what's public, what what you can hunt, what you can't. Um, and even when you're out there, it's just figuring out the boundaries, but it is, it's, it's just priceless. So we, I mean, that tool that we, we talked about that using the, 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 um, the phone app out there, how, how priceless it is. And, and these guys are like, I don't even know how we used to do it without Onyx maps. You just have to be much more in tune to, you know, and be carrying maps out there. Yeah. Um, and, and stopping and getting the right maps to, to make sure that you're you're you know doing everything by the book. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm I like to seek the solitude. I like thinking that I'm the only one out there hunting these covers. And um, really, both trips. So the trip that we were on two years ago, we ended up camping, and they actually got a bunch of rain like when we were driving out. And those road, the Montana roads out there. They just turned to straight sludge, we call them, and it's sticking to your tires. You're sliding all over the roads. It's sticking to your boots, sticking to your pants. It's all over everything, and so we actually parked the trucks at the camp, and I don't think we got back in a truck for three days. Everything we wow. hunted was was within walking distance, and, I mean, we walked just a ton of miles. I mean, we put on, you know, I think that year was probably at least 10 miles a day because we had to walk to the spots that we wanted to get to, but yeah. you wouldn't dare, you wouldn't dare hop in your truck and drive down the road in fear of getting stuck. And nobody's, nobody's really there to get you unstuck. Um, and so that was kind of the experience, uh, two years ago. And we, we camped in the same spot for the whole week. Um, and you know, after those first few days, we started stretching out and hunting, hunting, you know, spots that we couldn't get to by foot. Um, but there was, that year there was just seemed to be a, you know, pretty, pretty good grasslands and, um, bird numbers were up and, um, you know, we just, we had some really good hunting around where we didn't have to 
completely pack up and move. Um, and, and this year, you know, we, we set up camp in the same spot. Um, we didn't, we only hunted those covers twice when we took, you know, took those 30 birds out of there. And, uh, just like I said, there's plenty of birds still there to hunt. We just felt like it was time to, uh, give those birds a break and, and go find some, some new areas and new covers. Yeah. Cool. Um, I guess I just jump in. The last yeah, part of that is like we had zero competition for for uh, spots to hunt. Like we saw, we we ended up we ran into um, like an antelope hunter, and we saw a couple other people driving around, but we never like the spots that we never drove up to a spot that we wanted to hunt and had somebody else parked there. Um, yeah. And so it's you know, again, along the same lines of seeking that solitude and, um, just kind of being out there on your own. It's like, you know, there was no competition. Um, and that just, I, I it just adds, adds another aspect to it for me. Did you even see, did you even see like another upland hunter on the ground with dogs on the ground, anything like that? Um, I think a couple of the guys saw one guy one day and I, I didn't see him cause you know, we group of five guys. I mean, the cover's huge out there. I mean, you can we can literally park the truck and say, "You go north, and I'll go south, and we'll meet back at the truck in three hours." Yeah. Um, and so I think, I, and it's hard to say. You know, we saw a couple people in blaze orange, and um, and actually, we're pretty surprised. We drove we when we were driving back Saturday um, Saturday evening through North Dakota, and like we only saw a couple couple people in orange walking through fields in North Dakota and I get that you're right off the freeway um, yeah. cruising home but we still thought that it was pretty light for the pheasant opener out in North Dakota not to see more people out but um, but yeah there's just there really wasn't that much much competition um, and I guess with our experience I mean we've with the landowners that we've talked to is I mean if, if you specifically say hey we're coming out sharp tail grouse hunting they generally give us access. A lot of the people, uh, you know, in the, the region we're at, they're probably, I don't know, maybe more worried about pheasant hunters or have people that come out pheasant hunting, so they want to protect that. And then another thing that's big out there is the, the big game hunting. So there's whitetail, uh, mule deer, antelope. Um, and so, you know, some some of the landowners don't want you tromping through their their land and kicking kicking out the big game that they want to hunt later on in the season. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, understandable. All right, I want to touch on something. That, you know, you mentioned you park the truck and your buddy goes north, you go south. Um, as far as like targeting cover, what is it? What are you seeing while you're driving the truck that tells you to stop there? Or is it just that you can park and then you know when you when you hit boots on the ground, how do you how do you hunt the cover? How do you go from spot to spot? Because I imagine you have objectives that you're seeing that looks birdie, that looks good. You know how are you targeting the birds and are you walking through large expanses of land where you're getting nothing? Or is it you know just talk about that a little bit because I I can't even visualize it really. Yeah, you, you kind of get a little bit of everything, to be honest. I mean, you know, the, when we park the truck, we're parking the truck at something that looks birdie to us. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, 
for sharp-tailed grouse, you're looking for, um, you know, shorter grass. Like, generally, generally, you know, people talk about, like, if you're flushing pheasants and if you're in, in cover that's going to hold pheasants, it's likely not holding sharpies. It's too thick and too tall for sharpies. Okay. And so you're definitely looking for something a little bit short, like shorter cover. Um, but at the same point, you're kind of looking for cover that's tall enough, you know, like, I don't know, I'd say above ankle high for sure, somewhere between ankle high and knee high, um, that's going to hold some Sharpies. Be, be, be short enough, but tall enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yep. Just like when we're um, looking for aspen, we we're, we want we don't want it to be too young, but we don't want it to be too old. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it's so variable. I mean, you know, you can have different types of vegetation out there, and there's sagebrush and um, you know, brush and olive trees or bushes. And um, one thing that we've kind of keyed in on out there is these snowberries. Um, I'm not sure if that's a scientific name for them or not, but that's sure. what we call them. But that's what you call um, them. There are these short, maybe knee-high um, patches of uh, of, and, and they're some at some points, or some of them are just loaded with these berries, and they're white. And I mean, we've cleaned plenty of sharpies where you just open up the crop, and they're just filled with these berries. Um, the the sketchy thing about the snowberry bushes is uh, that's where the porcupines also like to hang out. So you never know what you're going to walk up to when a dog's on point. Wow, porky's out there too, huh? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, we saw plenty of porkies out there this year. So huh. um, you know, it's just it's part of the game. Yep. Um, um, oh, and, go ahead. And the cover. Yeah, I was just going to expand on the cover a little bit more. I mean, you you can start walking through a cover and it looks good, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, half hour, hour into a walk, and then you come across a stretch that just seems terrible. I mean, it's, like, barren land. There's, like, little cactus, and, you know, that gets in the dog's paws, and, you know, some of it can be fairly rugged. And, um, you know, when you, when you're doing that kind of hunting and putting on that kind of miles, it's just like the rough grouse woods. Like you're sometimes you have to walk through bad cover to get to the good cover, and you know yeah. it's it's not like we're walking ten miles of ideal prime condition cover all the time. And you know you ask about you know kind of what do you target? I mean, with pointing dogs, I'm I'm just letting them roll. Like you know you you i'm going to put them put my dogs down in a cover that i think is going to hold birds and i'm going to let them kind of find those search those objectives out and learn how to hunt and learn to learn to see where the birds are at and where they're holding um yeah and and a lot of times i mean you know you might you might think you got to be down in this little draw down by the river in a little creek or something and your dog makes a cast out 100 or 200 yards kind of up a little hillside and the sharpies are holding up on a hillside you know, maybe maybe they're catching some sun, or there's a food source, or they're just seeking some cover cover from the wind. You know, whatever whatever that situation may be, um, but they're kind of they're stretching out and finding that for you. Um, you know, the guys that go out with they have the the flushing dogs, and they are really keying into what cover they're walking, and they're really leading their bird their dogs into where they think the birds are. Yeah. Um, so we really kind of have a combination of, of what's going on out there. Cool. Um, since we're talking about dogs, let's talk about um, 
dog power because yeah. obviously it's big country. Dogs put on a lot of miles, much more so than they do in the grouse and woodcock woods. You've got two short hairs. You mentioned you brought a third. Yeah. Uh, talk talk about the importance of that dog power and and how uh, how your uh, your crew held up this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, when when you go, so we hunted, you know, uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, eight days. So we had eight days of hunting. We had uh, a couple lighter days in there. We one day we had a, our limit, uh, three man limit by noon. So all the dogs got a break the afternoon. Um, one of the other days we, like I said, we we picked up and uh, moved camp for you know and drove three hours. So by the time you know probably had five hours, five six hours into packing up camp and and moving. Yeah. But so we had a kind of a, a couple rest days built in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically at the end of the trip, you realize that, you know, if you wanted to stay out there any longer, you would just have to take a day or two and just not run dogs at all. Um, you know, so I, I had two dogs, uh, Phil had, has two dogs, Tom's got two dogs, um, buddy Pat, he has, he brought one dog out and then there's another guy, DJ, he doesn't have a dog. Um, and so, you know, we're just, we're just really rotating and, and the last, actually both trips I've gone out, out there, I've taken three dogs and, um, what I've been doing is I just, I just hunt one dog in the morning, one dog at night and one dog gets a rest day. Um, and, and that's worked pretty well. I think the, the first year I was pretty amped up to be out there and jazzed around the dogs. And I think I ran all three dogs the first two days and quickly realized that the, that I was running out of dog power. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you're going to take that kind of trip and, and expect to, to hunt and be productive, um, you know, that whole week, you, you just need, you need at least two dogs. Um, and really, you know, you look at some of these guys that are out there hunting and it's like, they might be running two, three, four dogs at a time, um, of their own string, you know? So then it's like, you need it. You, when you're rotating those, you got a dozen dogs because, I mean, there's yeah. there's plenty of cover that's untouched when you have one pointing dog on the ground. Yeah, and sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you really want to do it, you you <laughs> ideally would have as much dog power as you would you would want or be comfortable with handling and bringing out there. But you know, and we we kind of go on this trip and like. Um, the idea is, is we pack food and water for the whole trip without needing to go back into town. Um, and so you can only pack so much and bring so much along with you. So there's a, there is a limit on what you do or how many, you know, how many vehicles you want to buy, bring with and take. And, um, if you want to pull trailers or not, um, but yeah, dog, dog power is essential. Um, I'd say the dogs held up pretty well this year. I think those kind of built-in couple rest days that I mentioned helped out. Um, and just rotating them and giving each dog a day off is helpful. But I think the thing, I think they had enough energy and, and willpower to go out and hunt. But really towards the end of the week, all of their, their pads and their paws are just tender. Like they, they get out of the dog box in the morning and they're just, kind of limping around and pretty pretty slow moving and yeah um you know they kind of loosen up and you know once you're into the hunt for 20 30 minutes they kind of find a groove and a pace that they're comfortable hunting in 
Um, but yeah, you just, you just get worn down and yeah, I, I, that's something that I always think about. And I, I feel like I try and condition my dogs as to the best of my ability and with the time and resources I have. Um, but you know, I, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, the only way to really condition your dog for, for running 10 miles, well, that's 10 miles of me walking. So they're putting yeah. on, you know, 20 to 30 miles, um, yep. you know, based on the GPS in a, in a three hour hunt is really to only hunt up, like hunt them and build up their, build up their tolerance for that type of stuff. Um, it, you know, there's, you just can't replace actually being out in the woods or, or the fields or whatever it is that you're hunting and, in uh, conditioning your dog to those, con- to those, I guess, variables and conditions that they're dealing with. And like the cactus, I mean, we, we don't have any exposure to that here. And, you know, maybe, you know, if if you have a dog that you're hunting out on the prairie all the time, day in and day out, they kind of learn what to look for and stay out of those areas. But, um, you know, I spent, I spent some time picking some burrs out and some cactus out (laughs) of, of the dog's pad. So. Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Um, briefly, you uh you posted a pretty sweet picture of your uh your older dog Stella on the hood of an old Chevy truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me this like where was that thing? Where did you find that thing? Yeah, so that was on um some private land that we um had access to in the first spot that we set up camp and um you know, it's it's the west, man. It's it's big farm country and I'd love to know the stories over time of how that evolved or who lived there, what they had going on. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure the property changed ownership a number of times and and the guy that now owns it, you know, acquired it from somebody else or, or was in the family or something like that. But, um, basically, man, we're just in this huge cover. I, I don't even, I have no idea how many acres it was that we were hunting, but I mean, to give you an idea of the size of the cover, like we, we parked the truck and literally, we had two guys go north and I went south and we probably hunted for two and a half to three hours. Um, and that's without touching the same piece of ground twice. Um, and that's all on, on one guy's property. And, uh, so, so basically I just, I was just, uh, I made a huge loop to the south and this is kind of, um, it was pretty near the end of where I was going to walk and turn around and start going back to the truck. And, uh, yeah, I had a, had a couple Sharpies in the bag and, um, I don't, I mean, it's, it's like the wild west. It just seems like so iconic to have a, a rusted old vehicle sitting out, um, you know, just completely abandoned. Um, you know, there was, there was some outbuildings and, um, kind of like a farmstead there that's just completely abandoned. Um, uh, but yeah, anyways, I set it up and, and thought it would be a pretty cool picture. So, yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely neat. Felt like captured, captured something pretty cool. Yeah. Um, oh, I was going to say, oh yeah. So you guys shot Sharpies, pheasants, yep. anything mm-hmm. else? Um, I, I don't even know if I really want to admit this, but, uh, I'm, I had a couple shots at Huns and I missed them. Oh, dang. Yeah, it was, it's, I'm pretty disappointed. Uh, I actually, um, and it was on the day, it was on the first day I shot a pheasant too. So in that day I shot, 
I think I had two Sharpies and a pheasant, and then I missed I missed two hunts. So I could have had three species in one day. Um, so that's a little bit of a, a, a tearjerker for me right now. But, uh, you know, life goes on. And it's been a few years since I've, I've harvested a hunt, so that would have been super cool. Um, but, yeah, we didn't. We didn't see too many. We flushed a few cubbies of huns. Um, and really the first spot that we um, set up and hunt, like, I generally don't expect to see any pheasants. There's a couple properties that we drove by um, that were private um, that had really good cover, diverse cover, um, that had that we saw some pheasants in. Um, but really not, not in, like, prime pheasant country. Um, and then when we ended up picking up and moving, um, this year we were there during the opening week of pheasant hunting, so we were able to have pheasant hunt. So like I said earlier, typically we plan it so um, so we're not there competing with pheasant hunters this year due to schedules. Um, we, we pushed it back a week and, and pheasants were open. Actually, you know, we I guess we took advantage of it on some level because we, we got into yeah. some pheasants and, and uh and had kind of a mixed bag and we're, we're able to hunt some different covers and, and really the covers that we're hunting, like I said, I mean, they, 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 they have different types of covers throughout it. So in, in some areas you have thick river bottoms with some, you know, kind of thicker stuff that's going to hold pheasants. And then you might walk a piece that's, you know, on the edge of an alfalfa field or a cut wheat field that, you know, has the potential to hold sharpies or huns. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool having that opportunity as well and not really knowing what's going to flush. Yeah, that's always, uh, you know, even you get a little bit of that in, uh, back home here, you know, if you're hunting grouse and woodcocks, you have your ideas of what it's going to be, but the, uh, you get into that multi-species territory and, you know, you're, I've heard it, I've heard this said before, I think Steve Smith wrote it, but he, you get in there and you're expecting a fastball, aka grouse, and you get a changeup, and, and a woodcock gets up and yeah. tiptoes through the cover. I mean, it's that's that's part of the part of the excitement for sure. Yeah, and it really keeps you on your toes, kind of when you're in that country. Um, you know, I mean, you you got to be paying attention if you're into the pheasants. Um, uh, you know that, or I guess however you're thinking about it, whatever your mindset is, is just making sure you're not going to shoot a hen pheasant and think it's a sharp-tailed grouse. Ah, yeah, that's huge. I didn't think about that. I mean, they do look different, and they do sound different, and they fly different, but, you know, when a bird flushes or you have a dog on point and you're walking in and all you're thinking about is killing that bird, you know, it's it's something that you have to keep in the back of your mind of you need to be paying attention to what – what flushes and actually we did flush um a couple cubbies of uh sage grouse up there um which were out of season uh yep. for the time we were there i think i think they were open the month of september um so we were we just missed that by uh a, a week or, or i guess a week to two weeks but um so yeah there's definitely some some multiple species out there so cool awesome um one of the other sort of neat things about your guys' trip, and uh saw some pictures from it, is I was going to ask you this first. Um, did you get a did you get a fox shotgun because or like after you met Phil and Tom, or did you get a fox shotgun 
then go to the 16-gauge shoot and then meet those guys? How did that work? Yeah, so um, I guess I I mean, to rewind a little bit, I was hunting with uh, an over and under Beretta 20-gauge, and I really kind of liked the idea of break-open guns. Um, they're easy, you know, mechanically they're really easy. Um, you know, there's not too many moving parts. They're easy to break down and clean. Um, so I, I've, I've kind of been on the, the double gun kick for a while. Um, then I started getting interested in side-by-sides and kind of the history and nostalgia of them. Um, so I was kind of doing research on, you know, kind of some affordable, you know, um, double guns and, and there's, there's such a wide variety of them out there. And, and sometimes it's hard to obtain a bunch of information on, on multiple, I guess, different brands and makers and, um, regions that they come from. And I kind of was settling, settling myself on an American, uh, an American vintage double. And, um, a guy I met actually locally in the cities, um, through my dad, they were actually in a dog training class together. Um, okay. it was, uh, it was like, a a NAVDA, um, North American versatile hunting dog association class that they just kind of work basic obedience with, um, younger pups, like, you know, a year to two year old kind of deal. You would enroll your dog and, and get some basic obedience. Anyways, my dad had met him. He lives locally. We actually hit the same park around here and run dogs and exercise dogs. And he was big into doubles and he has, he's, he's had and owned a wide variety of guns and he was telling me about this fox that he had. And then I started doing a bunch of research on foxes and he was like, he was like, yeah, I think I, I think I'm going to sell it. And I was like, man, I got to take a look at this thing. And <laughs> I saw it and it was, it, it was seemingly love at first sight, but, um, yeah, I just, it was just kind of everything that I was looking for. Um, and, and I like I like the story behind it. It was nice, kind of. That was the first first side by side I bought, um, and it was I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a good experience buying it from somebody that I knew that was yep. knowledgeable about guns, and you know I kind of you know knew that it it worked and it operated and it was good good condition and functionality, and um, so that's really how I ended up with it. And then through that same guy, he helped run this um 16 gauge shoot um and i think gosh i I can't remember now it might it was either the first or second year that they did this 16 gauge shoot it's a pretty pretty i guess relatively new shoot that's going on in the cities uh at the south st paul gun club um but so yeah it's all 16 gauge guns so it doesn't have to be a double gun there's there's a lot of side by side shoots in minnesota and it's not that it's a 16 gauge so whether you got an over and under side by side pump, you know, uh, semi autos, whatever. There, there's all all sorts and shapes and sizes there. But um, so through this guy, um, he invited me to go to the 16 gauge shoot, and then he started telling me, and you know, we you split up into teams, or you know, it's really just a fun shoot. There's yeah, you know, it's, there's no like paid prizes or anything like that. It's just to go out and have fun. Um, and the way they do the shoot is you do a you do a a morning shoot and you kind of split up and it's kind of like golf shotgun approach everybody starts in a different spot um yeah. and so you split up into teams and just go out and shoot and then you go have lunch and over lunch everybody breaks out all their guns 
and puts them out on all the tables so you can just walk around and talk to everybody. And then you go and finish the afternoon shoot, and then you kind of have, like, a little uh, gathering afterwards and uh, do a raffle and, and um, just have a good time. So it's it's really just about going out and having a good time. And um, Anyway, so the guy that I bought the gun from put me on the same team with Phil and Tom, who are both Fox guys. And, and um, I guess... I guess generally the crowd that you see that owns, you know, double guns, you know, it's probably an older age category or group than, than what we're in. Um, sure. you know, most, most of the people there, you know, I, I'm guessing we're 50 and older and there was a hand, you know, handful of us that were 40 and under. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a cool pairing just, you know, obviously got, got with somebody, you know, in my own age group and it was pretty sweet that they had Fox guns. So, um, it was, it was good, good to hook up with them and align with them. And, and, uh, I'm super pumped about it cause I've, I've met some really good friends and, um, you know, like I said, Phil has, he's had a, had a bunch of Fox shotguns and is super knowledgeable about them. So anytime I have a question about a, anything, you know, on a gun, you know, the safety, the triggers, this, you know, makeup or that makeup or, you know, serial numbers or anything like that. It's like my first stop is to go to Phil and, and uh, ask those questions because he's just kind of lived and breathed it for a number of years now. So, Yeah, yeah, that's 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 cool. And I was I was curious as to how, you know, you told – I knew you at the time, so you obviously told me about it as you had met those guys, but I was curious how it, how it all played out. But really why I brought that up and, and kind of the cool thing about your trip is – Every guy there had a Fox shotgun, right? Um, or is there on our on our Montana everybody. trip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's one guy without without a Fox. <laughs> What's his problem? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's I, just he's not he's not huge into the upland um, hunting community. Like he he goes along and has a blast and enjoys hunting, but I don't I don't know if if you asked him, it's probably not his top passion in life. Sure, sure. I guess I guess it's probably that was probably the wrong question. Not what's his problem, but I find it I find it hard to believe that you guys haven't forced a, a fox shotgun into his hands yet. Uh, I mean, we, we definitely joke about it um, and, and try to get him there. Um, and actually, uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, Pat, he just got his first. Fox shotgun, I think within the last year. Um, so two years ago when I went out, there was only three of, three of the five of us had foxes, and then this year now it turned to four. Yeah. So. Well, that makes sense because, like I said, I believe I mentioned in the intro of this podcast two years ago. I didn't know what the hell they were, and now I <laughs> now I I carry your old fox shotgun. Yeah. And uh, I have uh, I have. Taken down a similar path and and sort of uh, taken on that interest in in certainly what does it for me and I know it does it for you is just yeah the the sheer nostalgia and and not everybody gets there and that's fine but but when some people do and I'm one of them I mean it just there's something about walking across uh, grouse cover or where you were out in Montana carrying an American, you know, basically a piece of American history and shooting upland birds, an American tradition, you know, in the way that we do it here. 
And yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's really, really cool. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I think those same principles and ideals apply, could, could apply to nearly any shotgun, whether it's your dad's shotgun or grandpa's shotgun or been handed down or I, yeah. you know, just some sort of story behind it. I don't, I don't know the story and history behind the gun I'm carrying through the woods, but I, you know, there's a lot of downtime in the woods when you're walking or through the fields and, and you can look down at it and think like, you know, you know, my gun was made or sh- I guess it was shipped in 1929 or I guess made in 1929, you know, yeah. that's 80 plus years ago going on 90 years and like who's carried that gun and what experiences did they have? And it's, it's kind of fun for me to just look down and think about that and, you know, wonder if we're killing the same types of birds or, you know, that kind of deal. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's, like I said, a lot of different shotguns can have a story, um, behind them and, and make them, um, you know, fun for people to carry. Um, and, and that's part of why I like it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm right there with you. And, uh, that's, uh, that story and, and that, ability to sort of let your imagination run wild and, and wonder where that where you I mean you never know where that gun might may have gone and and what it might have been uh who might have carried it and uh what sort of memories they made with it so that's that's obviously very cool yeah. uh i heard you crack another beer quick on a production <laughs> meeting i am going to go grab one more then we're going to come back and uh we're going to wrap this up and not not too much longer i'll be right back all right. All right, I'm back. You still with me? Yeah. Did you grab yourself another Coors Light? I did. I got a <laughs> Coors Light. I uh, I started the evening before I talked to you with a uh, Founders Michigan mm-hmm. beer, I believe. I drink that every time I drink one of those. I think of uh, our buddy Matt Mates. Who, hard uh, not to. Hard not to. I know it's hard not to. I mean, he uh, was it an all loved- day IPA. Yeah, it's an all-day IPA. Yeah, that's what I that's what I buy when I buy Founders, and uh, I guess that's a good segue because uh, our our uh, our buddy uh, Matt Mates isn't going to make it to the uh, third annual Low Life Grouse Camp, which is uh, occurring this weekend at, uh, mm-hmm. at my my family cabin in Wisconsin, and uh, so we have that to look forward to. We we talked a lot about your Montana trip and. Uh, I know that that you had an awesome time out there, but I also know that you're excited to be back uh, to experience the the second half of October and some of the best uh, grouse and woodcock hunting that we're going to have at least of this year. Um, So at least at least we hope so. Right. Well, (laughs) extrapolating this year from all others, uh, it is at least it's October. You Uh, got that right. Yeah, I did. I did give another report. in the intro to the show and that I hunted another area last weekend and, and keep finding more of the same. And, uh, we won't go on too much about that, but we got grouse camp coming up. So we have some guys coming in from, uh, uh, Jay from Michigan and Sam from, uh, he's in New York, isn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. New York. So he just hit the road tonight. He sent us a picture of his truck loaded up. So he's on his way. He's going to, he's going to meet up with Jay in Michigan and then they're going to make their way to, uh, Wisconsin, where we're mm-hmm. all going to meet up on Saturday, so looking forward to that. Um, what uh, you got? Anything else planned other than uh, you know a couple weekends of grouse hunting here, and then I know you'll deer hunt 
What about yep. late season stuff? Yeah, so the next two weeks I'll be in the grouse woods and, and uh, uh, just just to give you an idea how excited I was to get back in Minnesota. I, so I mentioned earlier in the podcast that we pulled in at 2.30 in the morning on Sunday. I think I got four, four hours of sleep and I woke up and did some work around the house and unpacked and then I repacked and loaded up the dogs and, and hit a cover close to home and uh, and uh, went went out and chased some uh some uh woodcock so i was and fortunately was able to bag a couple so um pretty excited to get back in the grouse woods and you know i'm sure you touched on this in your intro but sounds like reports of bird numbers are are down across the board you know through minnesota and you what what's even worrying me even more right now is i've talked to two different people um in in the i guess today that that didn't put up any woodcock in their covers um and I, I can't believe that they're. I, I can't. I, I just can't bring myself to believe that they're gone for the season. And I'm, I'm hoping something just goofy is going on, and maybe a flight moved out or something. But uh, I would fully expect to see some more throughout the rest of the month. Yeah, I think. I think I. I think we're in good shape with as far as woodcock. Um, goes this weekend just because it has been warm this week and uh, you know I was out as the last day I was out was Monday and we we only hunted a couple hours and we moved um, plenty of woodcock but that said I was talking to uh, I don't know if it's I don't know if there's something going on with with woodcock this year either and they're and you know, I mean that they're always different because the migration happens differently right. each right. year based on conditions and all that sort of stuff. But I was just talking to my buddy Tripway. Uh, he was out this way over the last weekend, and he said he was having a hard time moving woodcock in some areas that he's familiar with. But huh. um, yeah, and, I, and you know, I don't know. I I, I talked to a guy in Wisconsin, um, not too far from where we're going to be, and right before I started talking to you, actually, and he said. Uh, he felt that the woodcock were in. So, uh, you know, different reports from across the range, and that happens all the time. So, Yeah. Well, uh, well and I mean, we'll, just looking at the temperatures, right? I mean, we've got, I think, I don't know, I, I obviously was, I was really off the grid for when we were in Montana with limited cell phone service, so I wasn't keeping tabs on the weather here. But, you know, this week we've got temps in the 70s, and I know in the cities it's supposed to be like 75, and then up at your cabin this weekend we're looking at like 70-degree temps. So, I mean, we're not looking at anything that's, you know, going to freeze over and, and really push the woodcock out of here. Um, so maybe something's going on further north, but um, hope, hopefully they're they're around because they're sure fun to chase. Yeah, yep, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, when they are when they are flying and, uh, and this time of year the leaves are down, the shooting is good, um, you get into both grouse and woodcock, I mean, you can uh, – you can fill up your days with just plenty of excitement. So uh, I'm certainly looking forward to that as well. We'll try to uh, we'll try to keep things under control. Last year got a little out of control, I would say, at uh, Jay's camp in Michigan. Uh, but I guess it wouldn't be low life girls camp if we kept it under control all the time, right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally looking forward to girls camp. So so I guess back to your original question of what's planned the rest of the year. So. Yeah. Um, the f- next two weekends, I'll be up at your your cabin. Uh, both weekends, hopefully long extended weekends, um, and then 
the following weekend is the Minnesota deer opener, and I don't think I've missed a deer opener since I became uh, since I turned twelve and was legal hunting. So I'll be up I'll be up at the deer shack um, and pretty much just sitting in a deer stand all day. And uh, you know I, I like deer hunting. I love deer hunting, but um, you know part of me just wants to uh, put some meat in the freezer and, and get back out in the grouse woods. So. Um, if I, if I don't bag a deer opening weekend, I'll be back up second weekend, um, um, and back after deer. Um, and then, you know, third weekend, we have a third weekend in Minnesota that we can hunt. Um, if I need, if I need to deer hunt that weekend, I'll, I'll be there too. Um, you know, I I guess I do have the opportunity to, um, bring the bird dogs with any of those weekends and, and go out and chase some birds if I want to, um, you know, sacrifice deer hunting opportunities, um, which I may do, uh, you know, like, I don't know that I'd want my bird dogs in the woods on opening weekend, but, um, I think I'm familiar with some of the covers up there enough to feel comfortable running my dogs on second and third weekend, you know, you know, you kind of scope out the area and see if there's any vehicles around and try to assess if there's any hunters in the woods. Um, yeah, so, exactly. so may, may bring them along second or third weekend if I want to, um, you know, go out for a midday hunt or something like that and chase some birds. And, um, outside of that, you know, I, I don't have any other big trips planned, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably try and take a couple of days off of work and, and sneak out to the, the grouse woods. Um, and then really I'll just, I'll probably hunt grouse as long as conditions kind of are favorable. You know, if we get a bunch of snow or something like that, that might shut me down. Um, and then I would probably turn more to, uh, pheasants. I don't know if I'm going to be hunting North Dakota pheasants this year. I mean, I guess, um, like I said, we typically go over Thanksgiving weekend. Um, that's, that trip's kind of become harder and harder just as, you know, we have a growing family. We've got two kids and we travel out to see family. And, you know, if we pick up and go hunting from there, we're just really not spending much time with the family. So, um, yeah. might, might take it off this year. And actually I think pheasant numbers are, are down in, in, uh, North Dakota as well. So, um, may, may not do that this year and, and have the extra license costs, et cetera. But, um, you know, there's there's some good opportunities in Minnesota um, to chase some pheasants, and um, been talking to another guy about uh, going down to Iowa, um, chase some pheasants down there. So, um, you know, if if we get a bunch of snow here in Minnesota, then I'd I'd uh, probably just turn to some pheasant hunting. So, cool. Try well, to, yeah, I think that try to keep it going uh, as as long as possible and. You know, having the Wisconsin license this year, I think they go through the end of January, right? Yep, yep, that's correct. So we got another so, month there, depending on what conditions do. Right. So, I think, yeah, I mean, the conditions, uh, you know, is going to be a large, large factor, and um, you know, it'll probably be more opportunistic. You know, like a day trips here and there. You know, if, if an opportunity presents itself to sneak away for a whole weekend, I'll probably do that as well. Yep. Excellent. All right, cool, man. Well, I think we've gone on a, a bunch here, and uh, I'm going to be seeing enough of you over the next couple weekends. So <laughs> I think we can uh, we can call this a wrap. Um, appreciate you coming on Project Duffin Podcast and, and really talking about the Montana trip because, again, 
Um, I know I was interested in that, you know, sort of how you guys structure the trip, how you do it, how you go about it, and I think that'll be uh, beneficial to the listeners too. So, um, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, look forward to uh, Grouse Camp this weekend. Sounds good, buddy. We'll see you this weekend. All righty. All right, take care. See ya. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.